Hi, everybody. Welcome to Episode 3 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm Matt Larson, and with me, as always, is... Cricket Lou. Nice to be here again. Should I say with me here, as always? I mean, are we should we make a pact that we'll never do an episode of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast with just one of us? <laughs> I, I don't know. Do, do we have to worry about that? <laughs> is one of us going to run off to greater fame and fortune without the other? Well, I was more thinking of it like, you know, what if one of us went insane and decided to take over the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. I, I was going to say that we, we've sort of made it past our sophomore slump, maybe. Right? This is episode three, therefore. I guess it is. This is our junior year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a prom this year, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it was. It was the junior, where I went to, to high school anyway, it was the junior prom and the senior ball. Oh, well, actually, now that I think of it, we didn't have a senior, we didn't have a junior prom. We, we had nothing, and we had a senior <laughs> prom. But this is like really fascinating to our tens of thousands of listeners. Yes, so. absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, so let's get right into DNS stuff. And I have to say that after our last episode, episode two, which was uh, when we were not talking about handbells, we were talking about DNSSEC exclusively. And my colleague at VeriSign, Dave Blacka, ridiculed me mm. for some of the statements I made. And I feel now that I have to set the record straight. We spent an entire lunch arguing about various aspects of that. So, so there were there were two things that I, I'd like to sort of uh, elaborate on the record, as it were. All right. All right. So the first was um, we both wondered out loud: Are there any iterative resolvers that set the DO bit, but do not understand the new DNSSEC type codes that we got in the third iteration of the DNSSEC RFCs. Right. So the very latest DNSSEC RFCs, RFCs 43, 34, and 35. And those are those type codes are DNS key and 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 its brethren, right? RRSIG, right, NSEC, right. and DS is also part of that uh, part of that bunch, right? Right, and so there was the great type code role, and mm-hmm. uh, so we wondered out loud: were, were there any resolvers that set uh, DO that didn't understand the type code role? Mm-hmm. And the answer is an emphatic yes. Right. So I went, I, I went back looking, and um, according to the bind source code, uh, DO came in in bind nine point one, and it wasn't until bind nine point three that they actually started. Or that, excuse me, that they actually rolled the type codes. So all of 9.1 and all of 9.2 would be setting DO and getting back uh, types that they didn't understand. So this this also begs the question of why why the type code roll in the first place. Mm-hmm. And and so I have some I I I remembered the reasoning on that. And and here it is: the, the DS record is the problem. Right. I said right again. Didn't I you promise? Did. I, I didn't say right, right this time. So I, I'm going to give myself a pass on that one. That was actually the second time I did it. I didn't mention it the first time. You, you do seem to be kind of self-conscious about it. <laughs> I'm only self-conscious because after I listened to the podcast, it bugged me. Well, it didn't bother me a bit. But then again, I wasn't the one saying right, right every 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, didn't. Mean but, well, to, that, that's uh, all right. That's all right. No, the issue is with what happened for a zone to indicate that a child zone, that a delegation was not signed in 
DNSSEC before the DS record, there was a null key in the parent zone and this whole null, the null key was signed and the parent returned that and that was basically burning an entire resource record and a signature to send one bit of information to people, which is to say, uh, this zone, you know, foo.com uh, is not signed. That's what the com zone would return. Mm -hmm. Now, once we have DS, what happens is now there's a DS record, uh, or excuse me, excuse me, there, there, well, yes, there's a DS record for signed delegations, but for unsigned delegations, there would be uh, NXT records, or now NSEC records, mm -hmm. and they would indicate that, well, okay, the problem, what's a little confusing is that we got DS before we decided to roll the other types. Mm -hmm. So there was this window where this bug I'm about to describe was discovered, where we have DS records, and where there are not DS records then, rather than this whole null key business, you just hand back an NXT record, which is how DNSSEC does authenticated denial. And this NXT record would say, well, look, I can prove to you that this delegation isn't signed because here's an NXT at foo.com. And look, there's no bit set for DS. Therefore, uh, it, it's not a secure delegation because there's no DS record. Okay. Well, the issue was... I noticed there how you said okay instead of right. I did. <laughs> Slowed me down there a little bit. I would have said something <laughs> more promptly had I been uh, reverting to right, right. Well, the issue, quite simply, is that this confused uh, certain implementations. Uh, I, I know bind 9.2 was a problem. I don't know if it was other implementations as well. It's just not to try to pick on bind. But they saw that NXT record coming back, and bind 9.2 interpreted that as a negative answer. I see. I see. So what happened is this: sem these semantics of having of adding the DS record, which therefore removed this null key business, but not doing anything else. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. the DS record called for these NXT records, and certain code bases just wigged out, and that basically would have made them blind to any insecure delegations, which is you know not not mm -hmm. at all what we want. So it would it would interpret that NXT as meaning. Uh, not the delegation isn't signed, but the delegation just doesn't exist. Correct. Wow. Correct. So there's there's RFC 3755 that actually, uh, I had forgotten about the existence of this RFC as well, uh, that describes the various alternatives and defines the type code rule. It describes the various things that could have been done, but says uh, for this various reasoning, uh, we've decided to change from uh, key and its uh, friends to DNS key and its friends, therefore completely blinding bind 9.2 and earlier from those type codes because they, they don't even see them. Instead of seeing an NXT record and, and wigging out, they see an NSEC record that they don't understand. Right. And then the other thing um, that I got some heat for was uh, not remembering the significance of setting the DO bit all the time. If you remember, remember that from last time? I do, I do. We were... Um mentioning I think the results of the survey work that the measurement factory did and that you did and you had explained that you saw a fair number of name servers that actually would set the DO bit on basically every query whether or not DNSSEC validation was enabled on those name servers and we couldn't remember why it was necessary for those recursive name servers to do that but we had a general inkling that it was important. Right, and it turns out that the reason, ha it, it does indeed have to do with caching, which is what I had 
what I had suspected, uh, but I can hopefully briefly explain why this is important. So let's say that you have an iterative resolver with a, with a validator that's setting DO not all the time, only, I don't know, some, some of the time. And let's say that behind that, downstream if you were, you have a stub resolver that wants to do its own DNSSEC validation. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't want to trust the, the iterative resolver's validator to do the, the validation. It wants to do it itself. Okay, so this, this might be like a caching-only instance of, of some name server that's DNSSEC capable and it's running on some platform, and it's using this name server as, say, a forwarder, for example. It could be that, or it could be, I don't know, conceivably some some application that had, like, wanted to do its very own DNSSEC validation, like mm-hmm. maybe, a, maybe a web browser or something. Okay. Well, we have the, the, the CD, the checking disabled bit, to allow just the scenario, which tells people upstream, when you set CD on a query that says, don't do validation for me, but pass back the DNSSEC records, I'll do, do validation myself. Mm-hmm. And the issue is... If your upstream is setting DO only some of the time, it will have data in its cache without the DNSSEC metadata. Ah, precisely. Yes. So it's it's it, it won't be able to, to trust that data. It won't be able to do any sort of validation for that data. It would actually um, have to have some way to, to ask that upstream name server to retrieve the same data, but with any DNSSEC supporting data accompanying it. Right, and we have no way of doing that. Right. Because, it, you know, as many times as, as it would ask, it would get the data back that did not result from a, a DOBIT query. In other words, it would just get a, mm-hmm. it would hit the cache, mm-hmm. and it would get the cache hit that doesn't include the DNSSEC metadata. And some of this stuff cannot be queried for directly. Um, you could conceivably query for an RRSIG if you got back a record without its signature, but that's kind of unwieldy because then you get the RRSIGs for everything at that name. And I'm not even sure that that works, but you cannot query for NSEC records. So negative responses, you're, you're, you're out of luck. So that's, that's the reason. You've got to set DO all the time so that people downstream can do validation. The, the alternative would be to have some really complicated caching structure where you remembered when and when you didn't set DO and that seems to be too hard. So the easier thing is to just set DO all the time. Yep. I got it. There, I, I feel like I've redeemed myself. It's a it's a weight off of your shoulders, I'm sure. It is. <laughs> now, what will Dave come up with tomorrow? <laughs> I guess that remains to be seen in the second half of our show, right? What what mistakes, what omissions <laughs> will uh, will there be in the in the second half of the show? Yeah, clearly we're just going to have to get him on the show so that other people can find fault with what he says. Exactly, so that he can embarrass himself. That's right. The shoe will be on the other foot. Okay, so are we going to go to our um, our listener questions now? Our mailbag. Can we call it our mailbag? We, we should. We should call it our mailbag, or Mr. DNS's mailbag, technically. Well, that's right. They did not write us. They wrote Mr. DNS. All right, well, so what, uh, do you, do you want to go to the first question? Sure. Um, the first question actually came in from... Uh, a systems engineer at Infoblox, uh, a colleague of mine named Josh Baverstock, who uh, covers our territory down in Southern California. Um, he says, Mr. DNS, can you tell me when and if stub zones should be used in a large corporate network? Why not rely upon caching of NS records and benefit from a simpler design that doesn't have stub zones? Were stub zones more useful when 
WAN links were very slow. Sincerely, DNS Padawan. Padawan, I see. I guess, does that mean that, that Mr. DNS is, is a, a Jedi? It might. <laughs> I think he's... I think he's many things. He's like the uh, he's like the Stig on uh, Top Gear. Top Gear, thank you. The Stig, yes. Have you seen the many Stigs? Have you seen Fat Stig, the American Stig? I have, and then there's African Stig. An African Stig. I have not yet seen African Stig, but I have heard about African Stig. Oh, that episode's a hoot. You must watch that one. Yeah, yeah. The American one, the one where they're actually going from from Florida to Louisiana. <laughs> Is is pretty good too. Pretty outrageous. Yeah. Where they, when they stop at that uh, at that gas station, yeah. After they've repainted their vehicles, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we uh, a little bit off topic yet again. Yeah. Well, so this question is, I think it's it's really about sort of you know what are stub zones about and when should I use them? I think that's what it boils down to, right? Right, right. And and now I've said right, right again. Well, forgive me. Um, to, to to, to go back, way back to, boy, uh, I think it was Bind 4.9 where stub zones um, were first introduced, right? That uh, sounds right to me. That's that's the right vintage. We've had them for a long time. Yeah, they were an experimental feature, and they were really meant, I believe, um, as a, a mechanism for tracking delegation automatically. The idea was that if you had name servers that were authoritative for a parent zone, say foo.example, and you didn't want the administrators of some sub.foo.example to always have to tell you when they changed their set of authoritative name servers, you could take uh, those parent zones name servers and you could make them stubs for sub.foo.example. And what they would do is, is every refresh interval, they would uh, issue a query to a master name server that you designated and ask for the current list of NS records for sub.foo.example, and back then they would actually promote those records into the foo.example zone to become the delegation for sub.foo.example. And so anytime uh, the administrators of sub.foo.example added a new name server, presumably they would change the NS records, they'd add a new NS record for this new name server, and then the next time uh, your parent zone's name server issued that query, it would, it would learn about it, and uh, automatically update the delegation for sub.foo.example. But that never really worked that well, did it? <laughs> well, we we never, I don't think I ever used it that way. And I remember if we go back to the hp.com days when you and I were working together, we had well over 100 subdomains of hp.com. And this would have been really handy because we were getting changes in delegation from those 100 plus administrators all the time that we had to stick into the hp.com zone as, you know, france.hp.com added or deleted a name server, whatever. And had we been able to track them automatically, that would have been pretty slick. It, it would have been. The, the problem, I think, with, uh, with stub zones, well, one of the problems I, I recall is that when that data changed, um, when you picked up, say, a new NS record for sub.foo.example, um, the parent zone name server would not increment the serial number. So if you configured this, say, just on the primary name server for foo.example, it would not bump the serial number for foo.example, and consequently, the slave name servers for foo.example would not learn about that new NS record for sub.foo.com. Oh, I, I did not know that. Or sub.foo.example. would have said. Yeah. Now, in my experience, what stub zones tend more to get 
used for is when you want to sort of slip into your name server's cache knowledge of a particular zone that you want it to know about and potentially short circuit, if you will, the normal resolution process. Yes, exactly. And we've we've used them that way in a lot of a lot of the the designs that we did as part of Acme Byte and Wire. Um, when we wanted to again, like you say, short circuit normal. Uh, iterative name resolution from the root name servers, we've said, okay, uh, rather than going all the way to the roots, um, Mr. Recursive Name Server, you're going to go to this particular master name server or maybe two or three master name servers, which you list by IP address. You're going to get the list of NS records from them, and you're going to use that as your starting point for resolution of domain names that end with this certain suffix. Right, and I remember that being handy when you had maybe a direct connection to a business partner? Yeah, in fact, I, I believe that that it's it's something that we commonly used with, for example, financial services customers that had connections to Reuters. Do you remember that? Vaguely. Um, yeah, Reuters has a set of name servers that you need to use for resolution of, uh, I, I don't remember what the what the domain name is exactly, but something that ends in Reuters.com. If you go out to the real Reuters.com name servers, they claim to know nothing about this stuff. So you have to actually do that query over your private connection to Reuters. So does that answer the question? I think it, I think it does. Can we can we think of any? I will ask this question at the risk of our not being able to answer it. Uh, but can we think of any other common uses for them? Well, w one thing that we've also done um, with with stub zones is to uh, take advantage of stub zones to turn off forwarding. So, um, you know, for example, if you have a recursive name server that is configured to use a set of forwarders, if you wanted it not to use those forwarders to resolve certain domain names, you could set it up to have a stub zone and then an empty forwarders substatement. Again, this is all bind. Um, we should we should specify that 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 stub zones are really uh, unique to bind, as far as as far as I know, right? Microsoft DNS servers support conditional forwarding, but do they support stub zones? Maybe they do now. Oh, I should know. Yeah, <laughs> given we both have our names on. A certain book, <laughs> Robbie. <laughs> well, and and I was also about to make a statement about Unbound, which I should also know about, and and I'm pretty sure that Unbound has uh, stub zones, and if I don't, then people can ridicule me. Okay, but this time it'll be it'll be Olaf Kolkman or someone like that ridiculing you. Um, but but you 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 get what I'm what I'm after, right? You have your recursive name server pointing to these forwarders, but you want to tell it. Uh, don't go to the forwarders if you're resolving something in internal.foo.example. So you can you can configure an internal.foo.example stub zone and then use that forwarders substatement to override forwarding for anything that ends in internal.foo.example. Right. So I think this maybe is getting to an, another aspect of Josh's question where he asks about stub zones versus NS records. Mm -hmm. And let's say you have a company that has a lot of recursive name servers internally and you're using forwarding to resolve external names. Mm -hmm. Well, one, th one thing you could do to take advantage of stub zones is exactly the scenario you just described. You have only a few authoritative servers for, what are you using, foo.example? Foo.example. Yeah. So, so there's only, let's say, two authoritative servers for foo.example and all the other recursive name servers have the configuration you described within this company. They forward to some server that can resolve externally, 
and then they have a stub for foo.example and that causes them to load the NS records for foo.example and now they can resolve anything in foo.example by starting with those two authoritative servers. But another option instead of using stub zones would be to just make all of those recursive name servers in the entire company authoritative for foo.example. Exactly. Exactly. Although that might be a lot of authoritative name servers. And depending on uh, the replication mechanism you're using, if you're using, for example, traditional AXFR zone transfers, that might be a lot of, uh, a lot of burden to place on a master name server. It could be. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And it just doesn't seem as clean. No. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. All right. I think we've answered it. Okay. Good. Good. All right. Well, the, the next question that we want to do is from one of my colleagues, Chris Gordon, who is at uh, VeriSign in Virginia. Does it does it look as though, or does it sound as though, we've had to beg all of our colleagues to submit questions to us? Well, it does, but um, <laughs> you know, they've just they've just done it. It's been gratifying. It has, yeah, it has been. It has been. So, what did Chris ask us? He asks, "What impact do you think DNS prefetching in web browsers will have, or does have?" on both the load on servers at various levels, and he must mean you know, various levels of the DNS hierarchy, mm -hmm. and any trend analysis relating domain site popularity to number of DNS queries, relying on DNS queries. Oh, in other words, is it going to skew anybody's metrics? Mm -hmm. And he, then he says, DNS prefetching is done, he believes, by Google's Chrome browser, and you know, that we definitely know that to be true, Yes. Uh, and, and the Firefox plugin FasterFox, which I hadn't heard of. Uh, neither have I. Neither have I. Maybe I have to go get, go out and get it though. Um, yeah, prefetching is a really is a really interesting uh, interesting mechanism. Basically, the way I understand prefetching works, if you're actually typing in a a URL or just a domain name into the the URL field or location field of your browser, like your Chrome browser, prefetching says uh, anytime you've typed something. Uh, that ends in uh, what it knows is a is a real top level domain name. It'll issue a query. So, for example, if what you're typing is www.company.com, you type your www. There's there's no top level domain called w or www or www. So it doesn't do a look up there. And then you type dot, and then you type co, and it says aha www.co. There is a top level co domain name, which actually belongs to Columbia, the country, and uh, it'll, it'll send a query out for www.co. And presumably there is no www.co, um, so then you'll continue typing. Remember, again, you're trying to get to www.company.com, and you type an M, and that's www.com. <laughs> so presumably it would look that up as well. Um, and I, I would imagine there might be a www.com. Some lucky person has it. Who knows what they're doing with it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. They thought they'd cornered the market on uh, web, web something or other. Yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, if if you continue, then of course you'd be able to type to type out the rest of company without matching any real top level zones. And then when you get to the second dot and type co again, the co uh, in the com in the last label, it would again now t uh, send a query to www or for www.company.co uh, to some name servers in, in Colombia, presumably. And then uh, finally, you would actually get to www.company.com, which was 
the domain name that you had intended in the first place. So it would actually end up uh, doing several name resolutions, um, in this case I guess three different name resolutions, before getting to, uh, to the domain name that you actually intended in the first place. And all for naught, we might add. Yeah, yeah. And moreover, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how the prefetching algorithms work, but there is the opportunity for some hijacking here, right? You could imagine, uh, for example, some of these Colombians irritated by the fact that uh, that uh, these Norte Americanos are, are overwhelming their, their uh, name servers. Uh, you know, there's no reason that www.co couldn't match uh, an address <laughs> and couldn't actually take you somewhere. Well, or what about www.google.co? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If, yeah. If Google doesn't in fact have that name for you, just to pick a very popular domain name. Yeah. Yeah. So I would imagine that these prefetching browsers have to have some sort of algorithm, right, that says uh, there has to be a pause of, of so long in between keystrokes before doing the lookup or... I don't know. I know very little about it. I I do know uh, at, at VeriSign we did an analysis. Of, you know, it wasn't a an exhaustive analysis. Uh, it was it was kind of one guy put this put Chrome under a microscope microscope to just get to the bottom of what was going on because mm -hmm. um, you know it, it it was all the buzz there for a while and we thought well we 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 got to know what's happening. So what I know basically corresponds to what you just said, but I don't know any of the subtlety about pausing or in anything. I just know the queries that it emits. Yeah. Yeah. And we should say that, you know, in, in, in a perfect world, this kind of prefetching would speed up access to a website because it, it would resolve the domain name that much more quickly. But it certainly does have its perils. Um, in the case of, of the Colombians, of course, the Colombians are, are uh, you know, should these prefetching browsers become very, very popular, and of course right now Chrome probably represents just a, a, a tiny fraction of the browsers out there, um, but should they become very popular, the Colombians may well see a, a big spike <laughs> in uh, in the load on the, the name servers that are authoritative for their, their top-level CO domain. Yes, it is hard to imagine a use case where this really is beneficial, though. I, I suppose if there were a gap between when you finish typing the name and when you actually hit return, if there were a pause, mm -hmm. then it could be working ahead on resolving the name before you actually hit return. But am, am I just missing the point here? Where's the other use case where this is really beneficial? You know, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that shows that we don't understand it as well as we should. And again, we're inviting ridicule from our our savvier listeners. So, so we are finding the perils of podcasting. This this is something they don't tell you about before you start podcasting. Right, right. Don't ask yourself a question that you do not already know the answer to. Isn't that what trial lawyers say? I believe they do. That's that's the uh, that's the uh, um, if, if it if it don't fit, you must acquit problem i i got nothing there <laughs> the that was uh, uh our 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 vp our vp of marketing uh rick hagan mentions this mentions this periodically that uh that uh the prosecution should never have have asked oj to try on the glove without knowing ahead of time uh, that it fit and in fact it didn't fit well okay that's two questions i think that's an honest day's work 
<laughs> Especially given that it's actually MLK Day today. It's uh, it's a holiday for both of us, right? It, it is. Mr. DNS, however, knows no holidays. That's right. That's right. In fact, I, I believe that if we look over the, the history of the long history of the three Mr. DNS episodes, I believe all of them were uh, were recorded <laughs> while one or both of us was on vacation or, or it was a weekend, right? I think so, yeah. So I'd say the only thing that remains to talk about this episode is the identity of the fifth Cylon. Yeah, Ellen, wow. Should Or should we not have said that? <laughs> Uh-oh, we should have issued a spoiler alert. Yes, spoiler alert. A retroactive uh, spoiler tune, alert. Yeah, tune out 15 seconds ago if you watch <laughs> BSG and have not seen the first episode of this season. I was so disappointed by that. I I did not know and do not know what to make of that. And I also don't understand how that jives with with what we now know to be true. Uh, Starbuck, at least a Starbuck, died on Earth when her Viper crashed. Right, but I have a problem with that, too. Well, because... I mean, doesn't that, I, she would have to be the, the last Cylon because she died and yet she's obviously back. R- right, but, but here's my problem with that. Um, Lee looks over, Lee Adama, mm-hmm. uh, look, Apollo, looks over from his Viper in whatever the cliffhanger episode it was, and he sees her explode mm-hmm. in the, was that the nebula or the gas giant? I don't know. I'm not that much of a groupie to know. But he sees her Viper explode, right? Yeah. Yet the pieces of it, the wreckage, are on Earth. How do you explain that? Maybe Earth was in that nebula. I don't I don't know. It, it didn't make sense to me either. So it's like some higher power moved the wreckage to Earth so they could find Earth and then made a new Starbuck and a new Viper. And, it's, and we're just... It's the same higher power that keeps playing Jimi Hendrix. Clearly. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, still, I'm still hopeful about uh, the last now nine episodes. Right? Yep. Nine episodes and then, I don't know, reruns forever. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that you were you were watching BSG. I don't. I don't really? know why I. I don't know why I wouldn't wouldn't have figured that you were. I haven't been watching it from the beginning. So once I finally realized how good it was, I had this wonderful catch up session where I just watched back to back episodes, and it was it was oh, wonderful. And yeah, yeah. And then I, I got caught up, and I was like everybody else, just waiting, waiting, and waiting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it has been an absolutely great series. Really, one of the best one of the best things on television, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And we have to say goodbye, actually, to to another one of the best series on television. I don't know if you if you watched it, Pushing Daisies. I know you're a big fan of that. I have not yet seen it, but it's uh, <sighs> it's in my net it's in my Netflix queue based on your recommendation. So. Oh, I'm sighing because it's over. Oh, okay. It was canceled. Yeah. Which is is just it's. It's a tragedy, and it's a travesty. It's yet another time that uh, you know the best new show on television has been has been canceled far, far too early. It's Firefly all over again. It is. It's Firefly. It's my so-called life. Ugh, it's uh, there are so, so many instances of this. When you and I are in charge, things are going to be different. That's right. <laughs> right. Well, on that note, I think we should probably wind it up. But we should solicit uh, your questions to our, our email alias, which is MrDNS at ask-mrdns.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and we may not be able to get to your question right away since 
our answers are obviously so long-winded, but uh, we will get to them sooner or later, won't we? We will. Thanks for listening. Thank you.